Please remain standing for our Old Testament lesson, which is also our sermon text from Joel chapter 2. I'm going to read from verses 12 to 19. Again, give your ear to God's holy word. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for the way that it reveals you to us, that it reveals your character. And so, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, as we consider it, that you would reveal yourself to us by your spirit. And in so doing, you would transform us more and more into the image of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the interesting things about the book of Joel and one thing that makes it very difficult for commentators to date is that he never mentions the historical circumstances in which he's writing too specifically. You know, most of the prophetic books will talk about the king who was in power during the prophet's ministry or a certain army or a battle or some uh, historical referent that we know, but Joel doesn't really do that. The context for his message to the people are some severe judgments from God. In chapter 1, he mentions a locust plague that has devastated the crops. He also mentions a severe drought. And in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, just before our sermon text, he describes a pending army invasion. And all of these things, he say, are pointers to the great judgment, to the great day, the day of the Lord. Which is really fun stuff to contemplate today, right? All of our texts are about repentance. No, but, but Joel is actually not only a book about judgment, it's a book of hope. Because in the midst of all of that, God himself speaks in our text today and calls people back to him, calls his people back to him in repentance. Turn to me, the Lord says, with all your heart. 
That means God used even the trials that his people face as a nation to awaken the hearts of his people and bring them back to him. It means that God is using the trials and the circumstances, everything around your life, in order to draw you into closer repentance and closer communion with him. And that what makes it precisely wonderful that we don't know exactly what the circumstances of Joel are because God's call to return to him no matter what the circumstances are, whether things are good or whether they're like Israel's time here, really, really bad, you can repent and return to the Lord and draw closer to him. As I said in our text today, we have God himself speaking and describing the kind of repentance that he desires for all of us to have. He tells us this is what it looks like when you repent and come back to me. And so today, as we read through Joel 2, verses 12 through 19, we're going to see the repentance God desires. We're going to see that that repentance is for everyone. That repentance is urgent. That repentance is inward first. That it is based on God's character and that it results in worship. Okay, a little different today. We have a five-point sermon, all right? Repentance is for everyone. It is urgent. It is inward first. It's based on God's character and it results in worship. So let's look through this. The first one, repentance is for everyone. Look again with me at verses 15 through 17. It says this, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, the nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. So you see, the people are called to convene a sacred assembly and repent before the Lord to call out for his mercy. Following the lead of the ministers, they are supposed to cry out for God. But see, who's, who's called to this assembly? Absolutely everyone. In verse 16, it's the old, it's the elders, right? It's the young. It's the children and nursing infants. It's the men, the bridegroom. It's the women, the brides. It's the religious people, the priests. It's the laity. It's everyone, and it's even corporate. What this means, friends, is that repentance, the repentance God desires, is for you. The people are supposed to follow the example of their leaders. It says, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Leaders among God's people must especially lead in repentance. They can't come with the attitude that the people must repent. They must regard themselves as the people and the people as themselves and lead in repentance. What this means is that I and Pastor Sexton and Elder Peterson and Deacon Christensen and Hyatt and Davy should be the best repenters in our congregation. I'm going to strive for that. And I want you, as those who are called to repent, to strive along with me. It, it means in whatever relationship you are a leader or in authority or have responsibility, you are responsible for being the primary and modeling repenter. So fathers in your homes, 
you are to be the primary and modeling repenter. Bosses, you are to be the primary and modeling repenters in your workplaces. Those who lead must lead in repentance. It's for everyone. So now let me talk to the youngest people for a minute. Agnes and Catherine, Trin and Everett, Elkanah, Elliot, William, Michael, RJ. This text means that you are not too young to repent. You are not too young to continually entrust yourself to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. The Apostle John says, he says to you that Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins to him. He says this, little children, I am writing to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's true for you. And I know some of you from conversations that when you think or when you do things that are wrong, when you sin, you carry around a burden of guilt. And I want you to know that you can talk to your parents about that burden and they will point you to Christ. You should also ask God to forgive you of your sins for Jesus' sake and you know from the promises of Scripture that he will. We like to sing that Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. But Jesus loves you, little children, not because you're sweet and cute, even though many of you are. He loved you by dying for your sins, just like he did the adults that are sitting up and down the row from you right now. One thing that you can do is be like the little children in the passage that we just read today and learn to repent when we're gathered all together at church. You can learn and memorize the prayer of confession that we all say together and say it with your parents every week and let that be your practice for repenting every day, every moment, whenever you need. You're not too young to repent. Okay, now let me pull out my list of very old people in the congregation and read that out. <laughs> Repentance is also for the old, right? It's easy to think that you can't teach an old dog new, trick, new tricks, to be resigned to just things being the way that they are. But the believer is never to make peace with sin, but to repent and fight by the power of the Holy Spirit day in and day out until glory. Far from coasting in on your current experience of God, let the oldest among us commit themselves to being examples not only of holiness of life, but also as quick and thorough repenters. Repentance is for everyone. First point. Second one, repentance is urgent. Repentance is not to be put off. In verse 12, God speaks and says, Now, therefore, turn or some translations say even now or yet even now with the point being that repentance is urgent because judgment is at the door in verse 1 of chapter 2 it says the day of the lord is coming 
It is at hand. And after describing that day in terms, like I said, of an army invading, Joel says this in verse 11. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Chapter 2, verse 11. As I said, Joel is using this event and the others he described, the locust plague and the the drought in chapter 1, to point to the fact that God's ultimate judgment is always at hand for us. We might be called to stand before him and receive his judgment at any point. Repentance, therefore, is always urgent. You cannot put it off for something that is more important. Look, in verse 16, he's saying, don't even put it off for your wedding. If you're getting prepared for your wedding, make sure you repent. So why do we put off repentance? Well, God is actually trying to deal with some of the reasons that we often give in the kinds of judgments that he sent the Israelites. They're they're object lessons. One of the reasons we put off repentance is because we underestimate the destructive power of sin. This is represented by the locust plague and the drought. Joel talks about it in chapter 1. If you have your Bible, uh, flip back over to chapter 1. In verse 4, he says this. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Likewise, the, va- the drought in verse 11 and 12. He says, for the wheat, uh, Weep for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate tree and the palm also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Sin, if it is left unchecked, has a corrosive and wasting effect in your life. The psalmist in Psalm 32 described it this way. For when I kept silent, before I confessed my sins, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For night, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Psalm 32, verses 4 and 5. Left unchecked, sin will grow and it will corrode and destroy spiritual aspects of your life, your ability to commune and worship God, and also out in your life. Just like the locust plague ate through all the crops in Israel, just like the drought caused the trees and the fruit and the wine to wither. The second reason we put off repentance is we underestimate God's holy hatred of sin. And this is represented by the judgment of the invading army. It's a kind of object lesson about God's active wrath, his active judgment against sin. It's dire. But, even now, God says, even with the fields destroyed, the plants withering, the army on the doorstep, even now, God says, return to me, even when sin has eaten up your life, even when the judgment is at the very gates, which it is for all of us, come to me, God says. So let me speak now to a moment 
for a moment to the, the teens and the young adults. You are at a time in your life when you are the most likely to put repentance off. You have so many wonderful and important things going on in this time of life. You are starting careers. You're getting married, just like the text says. You're moving out of the house. You're finishing school. All of these are wonderful things, and it feels like you have all the time in the world and that you are invincible. But the truth is, like everyone else, you have no idea how much time you have left, and you have no idea what might come tomorrow. And even if you were to live a full and long life, that full and long life very soon is going to seem to pass like that. All right, just ask the old people that I talked to a moment ago. Life goes quickly. And what you need to realize in this phase in your life is that small sins grow. Allowing sin to remain unrepented and unchecked in your life is like owning a bear cub. At first, if you were to get a bear cub as a pet, that might be exciting and fun. You bring it home, and the damage that it does to your house and your life is minor. You know, maybe some you know, cracks in the walls or some destroyed uh, furniture, that kind of thing. But as the bear grows, its power for destruction grows with it. And you can try to cage and manage that bear all that you want. But at some point, you will wake up one day and realize that you don't own a bear, but that the bear owns you. And friends, that is true for all of us, whether or not we're teens or whether or not we've just gotten married or whether or not we're getting ready to move out of the house. All of us can be tempted to put off repentance for a more convenient time. We can all be prone to say that we'll change things, you know, before the kids are old enough to understand or after the semester is over, when we get into the real house or when my job is a little more stable. No, what God is saying, what Joel is saying is that repentance is urgent. The effects of sin are far too damaging and God is far too kind for us to put it third point repentance is first inward repentance is inward first c.s lewis has a very insightful essay entitled three kinds of men and in it he says there's a kind of person who is purely selfish okay and pleasure chasing they do just as their desires and pleasures dictate uh, that's one of the groups that he talks about the uh, the libertine someone who just gives full, full vent to doing whatever they want. All right, he says, but there's a second kind of person, people who acknowledge some other claim on their life, whether they call that the will of God, the categorical imperative, the good of society, and they honestly try to pursue their own interests no further than that claim will allow them to do. All right, here's what Lewis says of them. He says this, quote, they try to surrender to the higher claim as much as it demands, like men paying a tax, but hope, like other taxpayers, that what is left over will be enough for them to live on. Their life is divided like a soldier's or a schoolboy's life, in the time on parade and off parade, in school and out of school, end quote. 
You see what he's what he means. You see what he's getting at. These what the second group of people are those who do their best to conform to God's will in some ways, maybe even being religious, but it's like a chore or a tax. Their heart isn't in it. You see what he means? But God says that he wants the Israelites' hearts. He warns them against repenting outwardly only. He says in verses 12 and 13, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So rend your heart and not your garment. One expression of mourning in Jewish culture was and still is the tearing of clothes. It was a way of saying that I'm, I'm so overcome with grief that I don't care if my clothes are teared. I don't, I don't care if, it, if they're ruined and I look bad in public. But Joel knew what God knew as he talked to the people was that someone could tear their garments without tearing their heart. And he describes the kind of heart repentance here that actually pleases God, the, the repentance that God desires. To be sure, sincere repentance is marked by action. Look, he calls them to, to fasting. Sincere repentance is marked by emotion. He calls them to weeping and mourning. He even calls them to religious observance, convene an assembly, he says. But standing before all of that and standing at the, at the base of all of that, he calls them to grief and turning back to God in their hearts. God says, rend your heart. Have sorrow, have grief in your heart over sin itself and not merely over the bad effects of sin in your life. The epistle lesson that we read earlier, 2 Corinthians 7, the apostle Paul contrasts those two sorrows saying this, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death, 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Think about this. That second class of person that Lewis wrote about, the one who acknowledges God's claims as good and right, but whose heart isn't into it, is always and necessarily unhappy. Right? That person is always and necessarily unhappy because either, either they, did, they didn't do what they were supposed to and they feel bad about it or they did do what they were supposed to and wish they didn't have to. And then you just repeat that over and over again, every action. They either lived up to God's standard and wish they didn't have to, or they didn't, they feel bad about that, and you do that over and over again, and then, as Paul says, you die. Right? That's worldly sorrow. That's what happens. Godly sorrow, however, is sorrowful, true, but it leads to heart repentance, which Paul says has no regret. Incidentally, this is Lewis's third type of person in that essay. He describes them this way, quote, these people have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. The old egoistic will has been turned around, reconditioned, and made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs, it is theirs. All their time in belonging to him 
belongs also to them, for they are his, end quote. So how do you know if you have godly sorrow? How do you know if you are first rending your heart? Well, it's about God. Turn, God says in verse 12, to me with all your heart. Return, he says, to the Lord your God. Look at the prayer of the priests. A little further down, he says, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give them over to reproach. Why? Because it would be terrible for us? Because exile is awful? No. Why? Why does it say? Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Verse 17. Because of the fame, because of the name, because of the glory of the Lord. That's the basis in which they're to pray. Look, as God describes the repentance that he wants, he isn't saying here, Get your act together or do it right this time, even though repentance does lead to that. All right, in our gospel lesson, right, it does, uh, true repentance leads to fruit in keeping with repentance. But what God is saying here is he says, turn your heart toward me, love me, desire me. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The call of God here in repentance is in a way far more simple than bare moral effort. It is to want him, to desire him, to love him. Yes, the wanting itself must be empowered by spirit, but God has helped us by arranging things in such a way that whenever we place our ultimate satisfaction in something other than God, it ends up being dissatisfying. Whenever the Israelites turned to something else, turned away from God in their hearts, they found a locust plague, ate up all the crops. Right? They found a drought, took away their joy. They found armies on the borders, and it's the same in our lives. Whenever we place our satisfaction, our desire, ultimately in something other than God, God helps us out by seeing to it that that thing fails us and becomes dissatisfying so that he can again call us back to himself. Great. So want, want something different. Turn to God in my heart, you're saying. Desire him. Love him. Want him more than anything else. Anything else in the world. How do I do that? Where do I get the power to do something like that? That's a great question. I'm glad that you asked it. It leads to the next point. Repent. Repentance is based on God's character. Repentance is based on God's character. Turn, God says, and in verse 13, he gives us the motivation. He says, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. What's the motivation? Well, there's judgments at the door. There's plagues, right? There's drought. There's an army. Is that the motivation? Not really. It's in the background, but God gives us the motivation in 13, and it's his own character that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. That formula, uh, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, or parts of it is used throughout the prophets. As you, as you read the uh, major prophets, the minor prophets, it's used throughout that, but it's 
it's actually based in God's revelation of himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, in chapters 33 and 34, where Moses asks God and says, please show me your glory. Do you remember that story? Moses is talking with God and he says, please, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'm going, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock while my glory passes by and I'm going to proclaim my name before you and you will see my glory partially, but not fully. It says in Exodus 34, 5, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's Exodus 34, 6 and following. Now that story is amazing, but what makes that story really, really astounding is that it's in the context of Israel breaking God's covenant with him on Sinai and worshiping the golden calf. If you read Exodus 33 and 34, if you go back uh, maybe this afternoon or during the week and read it, you'll see that Moses has been interceding with Israel on the basis of God's fame and glory just like in our sermon text today. He says, why should the nation say that you brought Israel out here in the desert to destroy them? What would happen to your fame? What would happen to your glory? What would happen to your name? And in, that, in the context of his interceding for Israel, we get that exchange. And God is telling Moses as he prays that, that he will forgive them, not because of what they've done, but because of who he is. Because he is gracious and merciful and kind, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And so Joel is picking up that promise from Exodus and applying it to Israel in his day. And God is saying the same thing to you today. Do you want to have a godly sorrow? Do you want to rend your heart before you rend your garments? You need to see the glory of God. You need to see him as he is, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and never ever clearing the guilty perfectly merciful and perfectly just how can he do that how can he be perfectly merciful perfectly just and have that be good news for you and for me i'll tell you how on the cross jesus bore god's holy hatred against sin on the cross when Jesus was there, it was a day of darkness and gloom, very great and very terrible. And he is the only one who could endure it. And he did endure it for you and for me as a sacrifice, securing God's infinite mercy. What Moses and Joel could only know partially, you can know fully. That God loved you enough to have his son come and bear his wrath and all of your sins upon himself on the cross and rise three days later to bring you into a relationship of mercy and pardon. Jesus never turned from God, even in his heart, but he was willing to be treated on the cross as though he had in the same ways that you did. Friends, when you see that and to the degree 
that you see that. It'll melt your heart, and it'll make you want to change. It'll rend your hearts and lead to all of the outward acts of repentance that God desires. God's will will not be an external force pushing you from the outside, but it will come from a heart melted by the mercy of God that desires to do his will. You will stop adjusting all the claims that God has made on you because you will see that all of them are for your good and they're given in the context of a relationship where all of your, all of your sins are forgiven before you've done absolutely anything about it. Which leads us to our last point. That repentance leads to worship. In verse 19 it says this. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. God returns the grain and the wine and the oil. Yes, so Israel can live and be blessed, but also so that the raw stuff of their life can be reoriented toward worship. It says this in verse 14. Who knows if God will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? How's that blessing described? A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He gives new grain and wine and oil what you need to live, but why does he give it? For the purpose of worship. It's just like the Apostle Paul's exhortation to the Christians in Rome when he says, in light of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, Romans 12.1. The repentance God desires then is a heart that is turned toward him through his mercy, which takes all of his blessings and everything he gives you in life as an opportunity to worship and glorify him. So yes, if there is overt sin in your life, that will mean necessarily changing those things. But it also means living the whole rest of your life in light of God's mercies. It means that even if you don't recognize that there is overt sin, say, in your parenting, and you have good relationship with your kids, well, it, means you can't, it, it still means that you can turn to the Lord in that and begin to have the motivation of doing all things to worship and glorify him rather than only to be about yourself. It does mean that you can take your vocation and your job and see not merely as a means of providing sustenance day in and day out for your family, but as an opportunity to worship and glorify God. It means taking all of the things that God gives us that we need in our life, that he knows that we need, and turning them with a heart that desires to worship him in them. I want to encourage you, friends, today to take stock in your life and in prayer ask God, Lord, how can I glorify you here? How can I glorify you here? How can I glorify you in this part of my life? This is the kind of repentance that God desires. First, with a heart that's turned toward him, and then with a life that is lived for him. It is the repentance that God empowers. 
So let's pray and ask that God would work in us to that end. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit that you've given us through your son, that our sins are forgiven, and that you have reconciled us with yourself through his cross and his resurrection. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds and hearts to see your gospel in greater and greater ways, and that we would live for your glory and for your honor in all parts of our lives, that you would empower us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.